Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Weird House Cinema. My name's Rob Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and I think this episode is going to be publishing on Christmas Day, which is quite apt, because if I'm not wrong, one of the biggest toy crazes of uh, the Christmases of yesteryear were Transformers toys. And I think Transformers also probably partially inspired the movie we're going to be talking about today. So it's very much like a like a toy robot Christmas celebration, except imagine those toy robots were fighting it out for the fate of Alaska, uh, uh, <laughs> trading between the clutches of some like evil capitalist empire and a harsh Soviet uh, uh, future state. That's right. Yeah, we're going to be talking about 1990s robot jocks, which, yeah, I, I am to understand that the Transformer craze helped inspire this. But I think you could also pretty fairly compare this to uh, the, the the boxing robots, you know, the, the, oh, the Rock'em uh, Sock'em robots, Rock'em yeah. Sock'em ro- robots. Yeah, this yeah. is basically big league Rock'em Sock'em robots of the future. Yeah, imagine. So it's Rock'em Sock'em robots, but to settle territorial disputes between post-nuclear uh, apocalyptic superpowers, and they're like 100 feet tall. Yeah. this is It's not a Christmas movie. Um, we thought about doing a Christmas movie, but then this came up and this was perfect. Um, I will say that it, it is rated PG, and some of the people that made it talked about how it is for, for children. Uh, I did not watch this with my son. I guess I could have, but I'm ultimately glad I did not. <laughs> there's just, you know, there's a little bit of language in there um, yeah. that, uh, you know, I'm sure a TV cut of this, uh, it's stuff that could easily be edited out, I'm sure. But uh, still, it's a very enjoyable picture, and I'm excited to talk about it. This is one of those movies that is, it's, I don't think it's for children. It's for, uh, it's for adults in whom the child inside never died. Yeah, I think so. That's probably a, 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 yeah, a better way of looking at it. Should we hit that trailer audio? Let's do it. It's a new age of combat. Human beings, genetically engineered to be the best fighters in history. Two champions. It isn't over until someone wins. <laughs> at war with each other. Kill it! I have already killed you. Two invincible men. Let's finish it, Alexander. Here now. The ultimate killing machines. I'm gonna get in this thing, and I'm gonna kick your... <laughs> I really love this one. This is one of those with the uh, I'm going to kick your explosion sound, uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> which I, I think has been used in various other uh, cinematic trailers as well, but to great effect here. Yeah. Um, so this was actually directed by somebody you might not expect, by, by Stuart Gordon, who is mainly known for uh, Lovecraftian adaptations. This is not in any way connected to Lovecraft. This is a giant robot fight movie. That's right. And and again, it is it is rated PG, which which certainly some of Stuart Gordon's most famous works are not. Um, <laughs> he's probably best remembered for directing 1985's Reanimator and then 1986's From Beyond, uh, both just wonderfully weird adaptations of H.P. Lovecraft tales that went off in their own crazy, fleshy directions. 
Uh, he also made uh, a Lovecraft adaptation confusingly called Dagon, which came out mm-hmm. in the year 2001, which is the name of a Lovecraft story, but it's not really an adaptation of that story. It's more an adaptation of The Shadow Over Innsmouth, which is a different Lovecraft story. Uh, yeah. And that movie, I uh, I remember kind of liking, even though I don't know if I would say it's good. Right. It. Uh, I, I remember at the time when I watched it, I, I remember thinking, well, this is not an accurate uh, you know, depiction of an H.P. Lovecraft story. But um, especially now, I'm kind of like, well, good. It went off in a, <laughs> all these films. Yeah. It's, it's good that they went off in their own directions and became their own crazy, weird thing. Like, I think it takes place in Spain and it's yeah. in modern day mm-hmm. and um, like um, you know, sexuality exists in it, that sort of thing. Yeah. <laughs> I would say that's one of the major contributions that Stuart, Gord- Stuart Gordon's Lovecraft uh, films and also, uh, you know, the work of, of Brian uh, Yuzna, who he worked with often. Um, they in, in, they inject sexuality into the this uh, these these horror worlds. The, the other rather sterile originally. Yeah, the kind of uh, barren, hateful landscape of the original Lovecraft is a little bit enlivened by the by the Gordon touch. Yeah, uh, there's another thing I really like about Dagon, though. I remember thinking mm-hmm. it's just merely a visual touch, which is that the color palette of the film is very like blue and green everywhere, but the main character wears an orange sweater throughout the movie, and I just remember thinking it, that was a great visual decision, and and it really looks fun throughout the whole movie. <laughs> It had some cool monsters, as I recall, too. They went with the um, like the double-finned mermaid-type creature. Yeah. All right, well, um, let's see. But So these are some of the most, I think, noteworthy Stuart Gordon films. But he also did a lot of other stuff. Um, uh, and I had, did mention already, but uh, he, he did pass away earlier this year. He lived 1947 through 2020. Uh, but, he, yeah, he directed a lot of stuff. He did science fiction, such as 1996's uh, Space Truckers. And with Brian Yuzna and Ed Naha, he created Honey, I Shrunk the Kids for Disney. Yeah. Uh, they were the original like, creators, and, uh, and, you know, they have script writing credits on that project and any subsequent project. So when you see the next uh, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids reboot or what have you, uh, you're going to see their names again. Oh, okay. I don't think I've seen any recent Stuart Gordon stuff. I haven't either. He seemed to have branched out a lot later in his career, uh, getting further away from some of the really like obvious genre stuff, such as a 2005 drama film uh, titled Edmund, starring William H. Macy and written by David Mamet. Hmm. Uh, so, you know, he really ultimately had a very, uh, I think, a varied career and worked on a lot of different types of stuff. Um, Though horror fans, I think, are always going to remember him best from some of those those early, gory uh, 1980s Lovecraft adaptations. Yeah. Now, one thing that must be said about Robot Jocks is that it is a very zany, uh, cliche-ridden robot slugfest that is, in many ways, just excellent and delightful, but mm-hmm. is also... Uh, I don't know, you you could make many extremely legitimate criticisms of the script, and yet it was written by a, like, revered science fiction author. That's right. Um, Joe Haldeman, the uh, the author of the Hugo Award-winning 1974 military science fiction novel, The Forever War. Now, I had not I had not read this one before, but I picked it up after watching watching Robot Jocks uh, last week, and I've been reading it. I haven't finished it yet, mm-hmm. uh, but it's a very interesting book, uh, very much a book of its time in many ways, especially concerning uh, you know various sort of like uh, gender ideas and and so forth. Mm-hmm. But it's essentially a Vietnam 
story, a Vietnam memoir even, written by an author who, having just received a bachelor's in, in physics and astronomy, was immediately drafted into the U.S. Army in 1967 as a combat engineer. That's Haldeman's story. And he was subsequently wounded, received a Purple Heart, and the Forever War seems to re- reflect all of this, except dealing with futuristic warriors cast into uh, uh, armed conflict in a distant star system, a, a slew of different star systems against an unknown alien enemy. And the main character in that, uh, a gentleman by the name of uh, Mandela, is also a physicist who finds himself drafted into a war. Uh, only this time, it's against the so-called Tarans, who are these these aliens that nobody really has a clear picture of or, or understanding of as they're starting out. Mm-hmm. So it's, again, very much a product of its time, uh, quite interesting, quite influential. Uh, It's a solid power armor, military science fiction yarn, very much in the same, in keeping with stuff like um, Starship Troopers and Mm -hmm. uh, and so forth. Uh, But it has a focus on... First of all, the physics of other worlds and the physics of space travel, as well as, of course, the psychology of the soldier's experience. Uh, and a few th- interesting things have already popped up in it. There's a, uh, it touches on the perils of fighting around frozen hydrogen mm. on other worlds. Uh, there's discussion of how time dilation impacts war. So you encounter the enemy one day and you uh, your technology is superior to them. But then... The next encounter you have with them, their technology is years ahead of yours because of time dilation and travel uh, at speeds approaching light because you are a creature now of their past and they are denizens of what was your future. That's very interesting. So like every time you travel to meet your opponent, they get a leg up on you because they have more time to prepare than you do. Yeah. So that's really interesting. It gets into the use of hypnotic uh, suggestion to invoke xenophobic hatred in soldiers. And, um, and but on top of that, he seems to spend a lot of time focusing on, on what it means to be enveloped by the war machine, how it changes your life, how it affects your psyche and how in the forever war, it also co-ops sexuality as well as individuality. It's just kind of like this all consuming force on your life. This is interesting because I feel like what you're just talking about comes through maybe not so much in the original novel, but in the Paul Verhoeven movie adaptation of Starship Troopers. Yeah, yeah. I I understand that the Forever War is often brought up as kind of a counterbalance to the uh, the largely um, pro-war uh, narrative of the original novel Starship Troopers, which I have also read, but I honestly don't remember much about it other than some of the you know the the, the cool power armor uh, battles that were going on in it. So how do Haldeman and Stuart Gordon get teamed up to make this ridiculous robot slugfest movie? All right. So apparently what happened is, let's say, Haldeman wrote this book and it was a huge success and, and critically acclaimed. And Haldeman and Stewart ended up chatting with each other and working on uh, putting together a film adaptation of The Forever War. And they were both really excited about it, but it, it never came together. I think the, the way they described it is like Reagan was elected and then kind of like things changed. There was less funding for the arts and, <laughs> and therefore the project never came together. Huh. Uh, but it led to this project uh, with Haldeman working on the script that would ultimately become Robot Jocks directed by Stuart Gordon. Now, apparently there was you know, a fair amount of disagreement between the two as the project rolled on, uh, which, is, which has been summed up at times as Haldeman wanting to create a movie for adults that kids could also enjoy and Gordon wanting to create a movie for kids that adults could enjoy. <laughs> and they ended up creating not exactly either one. <laughs> right. <laughs> 
Yeah, it's kind of a hybrid of the two, um, which is, again, perfectly enjoyable, but it's more more of a film that the inner child and the inner adult can both enjoy or kind of fight over. Yeah. So here's a bit from Haldeman's blog uh, where he talked about this. Uh, He said, I wanted the mechanics, uh, he's talking about as a title. He, Stuart Gordon, insisted on RoboJocks. <laughs> it finally wound up being Robot Jocks after the people who did RoboCop asked whether we wanted to spend a lot of dreary time in court. <laughs> I would try to change the science into something reasonable. Stuart would change it back to Saturday morning cartoon stuff. I tried to make believable, reasonable characters, and Stuart would insist on throwing in cliches and caricatures. It was especially annoying because it was a story about soldiers, and I was the only person around who'd ever been one. In fact, he was right and I was wrong, but it wasn't until we were actually shooting the movie that that became clear. That's interesting. I mean, you can absolutely feel this tension in the movie when you watch it because it will alternate between moments that almost kind of actually work as as thoughtful science fiction. There will be like moments of dialogue that are kind of thoughtful and interesting, and then it just mm-hmm. immediately like throttles back into hilarious, absurd, cliche sci-fi mode. Yeah, you can get whiplash at times from it because you're like, oh, man, that was really beautiful. And then and then something else happens and you're like, well, that was goofy. <laughs> <laughs> but but then again, like I started I started thinking I tried to sort of divide these two possible films in my head. And I was thinking, all right, what if what if this character was played by a different actor and it was a more of a serious role? It was more of a soldier role like uh, Haldeman would have written. Uh, you know, maybe maybe you bring in someone like Michael Ironside to play him instead of a, a cartoon cowboy. We'll get to that in a bit. Uh, and I was thinking, well, that would be good, but it, but then again, it wouldn't be robot jocks. Like there's the the ultimate form of the picture. Um, like the the absurdities and the contradictions are one of the most notable things about it. Oh no, no, no. I wouldn't change a thing about robot jocks. Robot <laughs> jocks is exactly the thing it should be. I, I absolutely would not change it. I mean, robot jocks is the kind of film for which Weird House Cinema exists, something that mm-hmm. that cannot cannot just be praised as a normal kind of successful movie uh, that is in some sense absurd or a failure, but is absolutely worth talking about and, and has things to be appreciated. Yeah, and I, and I think just on the, the serious end of the spectrum, on the Haldeman end of the spectrum, uh, even though I think he ultimately like considered it a... Um, you know, a disappointing child uh, uh, from a creative standpoint. I, I feel like there there are elements that totally ring true. You get the sense of the absurdity of war, a vast war machine, you know, a military industrial complex that just sucks everything in. And in this film, uh, co-ops reproduction. Yes. So, uh, yeah. So, yeah, there's a lot to talk about here. And one one more thing I will say about it is that the ending of this film, I think, is a genuine triumph in both senses in which the movie works. It actually mm-hmm. is a surprising uh, narrative conclusion that I was kind of like, oh, wow, it's amazing they did that. But it's also hilarious in an unintentional way. Yeah, absolutely. Like it, it seems to like if it seems like there are two different films uh, competing for coexistence at the end of the film, those two visions come together and fist bump each other and yeah. it works. So maybe we should talk about the cast. All right. Well, our main character in this is um, Achilles, mm-hmm. uh, played by Gary Graham. Uh, I think a lot of people will recognize Gary Graham. Out there. He's been around for a long time. Uh, the main place I knew him from due to. Uh, all my time watching the sci-fi channel back in the day is that Graham was on the alien nation TV series 
uh, he played Detective uh, Matt Sykes on that. Mm, yeah, uh, I don't know what I recognized him from, but he looks like a sort of combination of other existing actors. So that kind of yeah. uh, helps him seem very familiar to me. He was a three way if they made it of uh, Scott Glenn, Mick yep. Jagger and Billy yep. Bob Thornton. Put those three yep. in a blender and that's him. That's yeah, that's that's him. And, uh, you know, I, I don't know a lot about about him and his work, but in this particular film, he does a good job. I have no no complaints about his acting. He's perfectly serviceable as uh, the lead in an action film. I, I would say his name, Gary Graham, is so close to the name Garrett Graham, of who, of course, was in Chopping Mall and who played <laughs> Beef in Phantom of the Paradise. And this movie could only possibly have been improved by swapping him for Garrett Graham. Oh, that would have been interesting. Um, I feel like you, Garrett Graham would have had to lean into like a sleazier version of Achilles. Like oh, he yeah. just has like he has a natural um, <laughs> sleazy aura in a lot of the, the roles that he has. So Achilles, Achilles is the hero of the movie, and he is the the titular robot jock. He is one of these pilots who drives around these giant mech robots and and fights it out. And I guess we'll get into more of the plot mechanics and, and setting when we do the full plot breakdown. But imagine this guy we're talking about is like sitting in the pilot seat of a giant mech warrior. Yeah, and he is the best. He is he is the best robot jocks jock that this particular faction has at their disposal. Right. Uh, but there are some up and coming robot jocks who who maybe could rival his greatness. And probably the, the most promising of them is a young robot jock named Athena. Right. And she's played by Anne-Marie Johnson. Uh, she was on the In the Heat of the Night TV show that I mainly remember as being a show that my grandfather watched all the time. Uh, and I don't think I ever watched. Uh, but uh Amory Johnson, she's been around forever. She's done a lot of work. And I, I understand she's also been heavily involved in the Screen Actors Guild. Oh, okay. So, um, yeah, a, a major name, especially if you're an actor, you probably are familiar with her. Now, I, I think there, there are a couple of roles that really make this movie by adding in a level of cartoonishness that I think clashes with whatever serious thing uh, uh, Haldeman may have been going for. And I would say that the, one of the two main super cartoony characters is the villain of the film, Alexander, who is, I think, supposed to be Ivan Drago from Rocky Four. Yeah, you get a strong sense of that. Um, he is he is our Russian villain, our Russian Superman that that fights, I should say, in a in this giant mech that has an amazing design, but is interestingly less human in form, less humanoid compared to the mech used by um, our heroes. So even though it's not, I forget I forget what the factions are even called, but it's not called the U.S. versus the Soviet Union. This is supposed to all take place after warfare or a comet or something. Something that's no, wrecked it, the world. There was a nuclear war. Yes. Uh, there was a nuclear war that like wiped out huge parts of humanity. And then after the nuclear war, your two main superpowers, which again are just apparently basically the United States and the Soviet Union. But the United States is called the market and the Soviet mm -hmm. Union is called the confederation or the confed. That's right. Yeah. So these are the two main main factions. But yeah, they're essentially the U.S. future U.S. versus future Soviet Union. And 
this uh, this particular robot jocks uh, jock played by Paul <laughs> is played by Paul Koslow, who lived 1944 through 2019. He was a German Canadian actor huh. who was in a lot of TV back in the day, but also some key 70s cult films. He had a supporting role in 1971's The Omega Man. Oh, okay. Which is which is a wonderful Very, film. Yeah. <laughs> it, his Russian accent in this is so awful. It, it Every it time he talks, I couldn't stop laughing. It's on the level of like, uh, you know, uh, he like meets up his opponents in the bar for a drink. Why is that happening, by the way? We should talk about that when we get into yeah. the plot. But like, so he and Achilles are drinking at the bar together and he's like, your drink, it makes me think of blood. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, again, he was German Canadian. He did, you know, and and this is not his natural accent. I had to look him up because he's been in some other like key films, like The Vanishing Point from '71. Mm. Okay, I was looking at a, something that claimed to be his his reel on uh, YouTube, and yeah, he he's he seems good in things, but he's he's never using a Russian accent except in this film, where it comes off as a like a Saturday Night Live or World Wrestling Federation uh, level right. of believability. Yeah. Yeah. He would be like a wrestler called the czar played by a guy yeah. from New Jersey. Now, that being said, he's he's very fun in this role. Uh, but that accent is is not believable. I literally think the one I just did to make fun of it was better than the one he uses in the movie. <laughs> OK, but then we got to get to our other main cartoon character from the movie. Uh, this one is the character of Tex Tex Conway, played by an actor named Michael Aldridge. Yeah, uh, this. Oh, my goodness. So this character, Tex Conway, he's our hero's trainer. He's his mentor. He's a former robot jocks champion in his own right who who won some key battles in the past. But, man, he is a rootin' tootin' Texan stereotype with a cowboy hat, uh-huh. but a futuristic jumpsuit. <laughs> yeah, so imagine, he's Buck Strickland in a, in a red and white jumpsuit talking about, oh, you can't get the lasers calibrated. And he <laughs> he so he specifies that... He was a former, like you say, he was a former robot jock himself, like one of the greatest that ever lived, and that his jock, uh, his jocking, his robot piloting won uh, the area of Kampuchea, which I guess is Cambodia, for uh, for the market. So you got to imagine, okay, they're capitalists now, uh, and it's all because of tax. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, He's he also reminds me of the rich Texan character from The Simpsons. Um, yes. It pops up from time to time. Yeah. So it's it is a very cartoony role of but a richly enjoyable role. Uh it's it's every time he's on the screen it's 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 wonderful. Uh and and Aldrin himself is a is an actor who was just a regular TV player back in the day. Like you just you scroll through his IMDb uh page and it's just everything that was on television with with some notable uh titles to to call out like Murder she wrote, Dallas of course, mm-hmm. The A Team. Uh he was on that uh, miniseries V. So yeah, he was in tons of stuff as well and he's great in this uh, as we as as we go on we should also be thinking about like who should be cast in each role for our 2021 remake of robot jocks and i think there's a pretty obvious choice that you landed on for the new casting of tex oh i think this was this was you right you, oh no no well you brought up buck strickland who was voiced by steven root right and steven root would be perfect for this role because you know he's great at yucking it up but also is superb at also having this kind of streak of darkness which plays into uh, tex conway's character as well right all right uh let's see who who else do we want to talk about in the in the connections here 
Well, let's see. There's a character named Dr. Matsumoto, played by Danny uh, Kamikono. Part of the he's part of this character's part of the tech team. He's this is a solid performer who did a lot of a lot of things. Most notably, the Karate Kid. He was in that, but he also appeared in 1993's Robot Wars, directed by Albert Band. We'll get to him in a minute. Same production company, company also Giant Robots. Sometimes marketed as a sequel to this film, oh, but no. not directly related to Robot Jocks. <laughs> One was not enough. People needed more Robot Jocks. We always do. Um, there's a fun cameo in this. We mentioned uh, Reanimator earlier and uh, The Beyond. Well, Jeffrey Combs, the Lovecraftian Lothario himself, the B-movie icon, shows up as just uh, one of the uh, the RoboJocks, Robot Jocks fans uh, that are cheering on uh, what's happening. Oh, yeah. Occasionally we get some shots of the, the, the proletariat, you know, the, just the, the regular society uh, and what they think about the, the ongoing. It, they treat the Robot Jocks battles basically as a sporting event rather than a major geopolitical conflict. Uh, mm-hmm. And and there is a great scene where we're watching a couple of the proles watch the the robot jocks announcements on TV, and for some reason they're wearing the hats that members of House Frey wear. I don't know huh. where that comes from. <laughs> yeah, that is an interesting wrinkle in the in the show, though, where it's like geopolitics as pure entertainment to a large section of the populace. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, they're they're again another area where this show gets a. Uh, this movie gets a bit meaty uh, before it gets goofy again. Now, one thing we see in the credits at the beginning of this movie is that it is definitely a Charles Band production. And that name, uh, if you have watched a lot of uh, trashy 80s movies, that name shows up a good bit. Yeah, that's right. Um, yeah, I, I'm almost hesitant to spend too much time on him here because I know we'll come back to to some pictures that are actually directed by Charles Band uh, and, or Albert Band, but uh, briefly, we're talking about the Band family here. Their their their, their history begins with uh, artist Max Band, uh, who uh, lived 1901 through 1974, born in Lithuania, lived in France, and then made the move to California. His son Albert Band, who lived 24 through 2002, became a filmmaker. He was assistant director on John Huston's The Asphalt Jungle in, the, in 1950, and then went on to direct a bunch of genre films, including I Bury the Living from 58, Dracula Dog from 78, and Ghoulies 2 from 1987. So he's already B-Cinema loyalty, but then his son is Charles Band, who, again, we've mentioned before on the show, he's the man behind first Empire International Pictures that put out Robot Jocks and then Full Moon Features. And he directed some really awesome 80s and 90s sci-fi horror films before going increasingly in the evil bong direction, (laughs) (laughs) Um, which isn't quite my thing, but, you know, you can't argue with success. Oh, he he does like demon bong movies? Yeah, yeah, the evil bong like one through however many, uh, <laughs> ginger dead man, that, that sort of thing. Oh, um, yeah. Yeah. Okay. But I can't stress enough that his earlier pictures, um, are, are often a lot more serious and, uh, and are really interesting. We'll definitely come back to something Charles band directed in the future. Uh, but uh, again, evil bong direction seems to have been very successful for full moon. <laughs> okay. Charles's brother, by the way, is Richard Band, a composer who worked on a lot of Full Moon pictures. And then Charles Band's son is Alex Band, a lead singer of, of a band called The Calling, which I'm not that familiar with, but exists. So, like, the, the Band family is still going strong. They are a schlock dynasty. And another connection to Robot Jocks is that uh, Charles Band had a 1990 film called Crash and Burn that was marketed in Europe as Robot Jocks 2, 
But again, this is another one where it's not actually related to robot jocks. But it does feature a cool giant robot plus Bill Mosley as a killer cyborg. Oh, I'd watch that. Now, one thing I will say about this movie that um, I do just totally unironically enjoy is all of the the robot fights, including I think there's some stop motion animation and I think there's probably also some like people in suits, uh, some some puppetry. I, I, I get the feeling that both are at play at different times. Um, I could be wrong about that, but w- whatever they were doing, I really enjoyed the robot effects. Like they, they, it's not like they look realistic. They don't, but they're that kind of non-realistic, highly stylized, uh, great old school practical effects that I just adore. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so it's it's not surprising that you have some you you have at least a couple of big names in this. Uh, one that stood out was this guy Steve Berg, who was a conceptual designer. He went into work on the art department on a number of big films, big sci-fi properties like um, Chronicles of Riddick, Alien 3, uh, Leviathan, The Martian, oh. Interstellar, Prometheus. Oh, Leviathan. You've seen yeah. Leviathan, right? We, we, oh, oh, we've talked yes, about yes. it. Yeah, that's right. We've yeah, talked yeah. about it on the show before. Uh, that was one yeah. of the 19, was it 89? Was it that the year when like five different was, underwater terror movies came out? I think that was the underwater terror year. Yeah, yeah. we'll have to come back to Leviathan because there's, there's a lot of fun stuff going on in that picture. Oh, we should do a whole series of Weird House Cinema where we just do one after another. We do Leviathan, Deep Star Six, Lords of the Deep. We were like round up the whole crew. Ooh, but it's like diving deeper into the ocean, Joe. The the, the deeper you go on that playlist the the greater the pressure the harder it is to come out without uh, uh doing uh, uh harm to your body because um yeah there's they're the the underwater films that come to mind and they're the ones you have to sort of hunt for from that same year mm-hmm. and they just get progressively harder to watch <laughs> i remember lords of the deep really not much happens in it like most yeah. of the movie is just watching people sit in a chair and say like they're coming for us yeah, Lords of the Deep is probably the point in in anybody's attempt to watch all the underwater movies of '89, where they realize that their eyes were bigger than their stomach. Yeah, <laughs> uh, but uh, but oh, uh, one of the the huge names on this picture on Robot Jocks that helped uh, you know create these wonderful stop motion effects, David Allen, who uh, who did stop motion animation and, and visual effects director uh, uh, credits on this. Uh, so this. Is the I think this is the real star of the movie. Uh, he's an awesome name in the stop motion animation field. He sadly died in 1999 at the age of 54, but he worked on The Howling, on Willow, Ghostbusters 2, Young Sherlock Holmes. Uh, you know all the all films that had some wonderful stop motion work in them, uh, I believe. And then he did a ton of Charles Band Full Moon Productions, providing the the sort of sort of stop motion work that really set some of those films apart. So he's the man behind the cool animation in Laser Blast, in Cue the Winged Serpent, and uh, in various other films, like mm. where oftentimes films where there's not much else notable about it, but just has some real eye catching stop motion effects. Uh, yeah, I would say that. That's probably true about Laser Blast, except that Laser Blast is pretty funny. Uh, Cue the Winged yeah. Serpent, that, that's a little bit different. I mean, that's got that that uh, that Cohen energy. Like, it, mm-hmm. there's, a, there's a pretty um, fun script underneath that one, in addition to the great stop-motion effects. Yeah. Uh, so when, when David Allen died, he was still working on a picture called The Primevals, um, and it was, it was never finished. And this was going to be just a, a, like an old-school stop-motion animation uh, fest. 
Uh, but uh, yeah, he died before he could finish it. But around 2017, Charles Band announced that it would be completed and released in 2019. And I think that got pushed back to 2020. And then, of course, most things in 2020 uh, were pushed back or released in a weird fashion. So I don't think it's actually come out yet. But if you look around for information about the Primeval's uh, film, you'll see some clips from it. And it looks really awesome. So uh, I, I do hope that finally comes to light. Well, are you ready to jump into a full breakdown of the plot and then maybe talk a l- about a little bit of weird science and, and the ideas in the movie? Let's do it. Okay, well, I guess we, we got to start with the opening credits, which really set the scene. So at the very first thing, you are panning over a snowy field of dead robots and mechanical debris. And I remember I was watching this with Rachel. She was like, is this a Christmas movie? Because it, it, <laughs> it very much seems like a combination of The Terminator and Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. Yes. And the voiceover narration, while you, you get the Terminator font uh, uh, credits, the voiceover says, It has been 50 years since the nuclear holocaust almost destroyed mankind. War is now outlawed. <laughs> oh, good idea. <laughs> How, yeah. Nobody ever thought of that before. Just make it illegal. <laughs> um and so they specify, well, with war outlawed, how do you settle disputes between these uh, superpowers, between the market and the, and the confederation? Well, they say that territorial disputes are now settled by single combat. And they go on to explain uh, here at the confederation playing field in Siberia. And they recount that the, these robots that are piloted by robot jocks fight it out. And whichever robot and, and their corresponding jock wins, the you know, to to the victor go the spoils. So, like, you might be fighting over who gets control of Campuchia, and uh, and the winner in this case apparently was the market with uh, with the old Tex Conway piloting his mech, and mm-hmm. so they get control of the land. And then you immediately cut to the present from here, where there is like a, a an ongoing fight between Alexander, who we mentioned before, the the like villain, the Russian robot jock. And a market robot jock who I think is maybe named Ajax. I could be wrong about that. But he's a guy in a red and white jumpsuit with a black eye and a bloody lip lying in the cockpit of his robot. His robot has been destroyed. And he's trying to throw in the towel. He's like pleading for mercy. He says, Alexander, you win. Alexander, I can't move. I think my back is broken. And Alexander just coldly says, judgment. I would like judgment. It's very, very much a if he dies, he dies, Ivan Drago Mm -hmm. thing. And then he just stomps on him. He uses his robot to stomp on Ajax and kill him. And it's victory for the Confederation. Fun uh, behind-the-scenes fact is that I believe that the stop-motion animation we see in this this opening um, encounter was, was actually originally test footage that was used to convince uh, Charles Band that they could make the picture. Oh, that's interesting. So maybe that's why it's in a different setting than the rest of uh, what goes on in the movie. Mm -hmm. So the battle is a victory for the Confederation. I'm I'm not sure exactly what they're fighting over in this case. Uh, And and again, yeah, Ajax is like, I yield, mercy! And Alexander's like, too bad! And he just smashes him. And then Alexander looks into the camera and says, you're next, Achilles! He's (laughs) <laughs> you know, he's got it out for Achilles, I guess, because Achilles is the best and he wants to defeat him. Yeah. Yeah. He's all about just superiority and proving himself in battle. And so next we cut to the market 
robot jocks command center. It's like mission control for, for robot jocks, uh, where the allied robot jocks and their friends watch in horror as Ajax is stomped by the bot. And we find out that Alexander has killed nine of their guys now. And it is, and there's immediately talk about why this is. It's because there's a spy. And I feel like this is great, you know, set this up right at the beginning that there's a betrayer in their ranks. Somebody keeps giving the Confederation advance information about the new weapon systems that they bring online in their robots. Right. And of course, there you only have what? five characters with names that, yeah. that matter. So, so you know, you don't have a, have that many choices here to go on, but you, you easily can see one of them is a spy, and part of the fun of the film is going to be trying to figure out who that spy is. Right. Uh, so they are uh, – so so there are various people hanging out, and you get to meet some of the characters. One of them, of course, is Tex Conway, who we've talked about before. Tex is Achilles' trainer, and he's, as we said, a, a former robot jock himself who had been very successful and ultimately victorious. Now I guess he's retired, and he's he's the uh, 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 the, the Burgess Meredith uh, teaching Rocky how to fight. Mm-hmm. Oh, and we also find out that they are fighting over Alaska. They're fighting for control of Alaska. I'm not sure why they want it so bad, but that's that's what the the dispute is. Right. Yeah. Like maybe it's the first step and then subsequently conquering other areas that belong to the market. Uh, But I guess we find out that Achilles is the only robot jock left, that Alexander has killed all of the other uh, market robot jocks. It seems like they should have had more, but eh. Uh, and I guess they are making more. We'll get to that in a second. Yeah. So then for mission control, you cut straight to a sparring scene where they've got Achilles fighting a circle of people all around him. All these like people in, in pads surround him and attack him one at a time so he can uh, fight them off. It's kind of like that scene in The Chinese Connection where, where Bruce Lee goes to the Japanese martial arts school and is surrounded by people in the circle and they all come in mm-hmm. one at a time and he has to fight them off. Uh, except everybody here is wearing goofy-looking red pads. Not only pads, though, Joe, they're also wearing jumpsuits because oh. this film is a celebration of futuristic jumpsuits. They're like multiple different varieties of jumpsuits, and they seem to be whoever was in charge of jumpsuits did a good job of putting them together, making them look quality, mm-hmm. and um, and keeping track of who should be wearing what, uh, which I love because I realized more and more watching this film that it's something I love about science fiction films. I love a good jumpsuit, um, be it a jumpsuit in something like Mystery Science Theater 3000 or, 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 or any other science fiction film. Like in the future, there will be jumpsuits and you will be assigned a jumpsuit. And, and so everybody's got one. Even Tex, uh, Tex Conway's wearing this big, ridiculous, bright jumpsuit. Yeah, they're red and white jumpsuits. That's the So the market wears red and white jumpsuits, and the Confederation wears, I think, yellow and black jumpsuits. Mm-hmm. I think that's right. So we see Gary Graham, the, the Achilles, fighting all these people, and he does quite well, except uh, there's one fighter who really puts up a good fight against him. And it turns out that this this fighter is Athena, who at first I thought her name was Puthena, the way they were saying it. Uh, but we find out that a lot of these fighters, or maybe all of them, are something this is again something I couldn't understand what they were saying at first, but it becomes clear they are what the characters refer to as tubies. Uh, mm-hmm. In this scene, Tex makes his prejudice against multiple types of people clear. It's clear that he does not like tubies, and he also uh, states his opinion that women will never be jocks, so there will never right. be a woman robot jock. 
Yes. Uh, he, he also doesn't seem to like um, uh, Japanese people. Yes. Uh, Tex is just full of prejudices. Yeah. And so you, you then, but then so you're wondering, what are these tubies? Why doesn't Tex like the tubies and what are they? Uh, Professor Laplace shows up and I love her. She is all business. Uh, she shows up. She's this, uh, this small older lady who is apparently like the, the market's greatest geneticist, greatest scientist. And she's there to collect DNA samples from all of the great robot jocks. So she like gives these tubes to, uh, to Achilles and to Tex and is like, I need your genetic material <laughs> because she's yep. developing what she calls gen jocks, which as far as I can tell, these are, uh, these are eugenically created perfect robot jock soldiers that are that are created through in vitro fertilization and there is there is like there's a, a tubi race in this movie the people they're calling tubies are these people who are who are a product of in vitro fertilization which they regard in the film as this like bizarre futuristic thing even though it was it was already being done at the time the movie was made yeah, it's in it. So first of all, not a lot of detail is really provided about how they're supposedly doing this. Like, are they are they growing tubies at the rate one would actually create, you know, um, uh, you know, breed new people through a process like this, or is there some sort of sci-fi speeding up of the process? You know, yeah. Um, is is this boys from Brazil or is this Attack of the Clones? I can't tell. Well, the way it seems like in this movie. The concept of tubies is invoked because it's it sounds futuristic. It's almost as if it's being written about by someone who didn't maybe didn't even know what was actually involved. I'm not sure. Right. Yeah. Like on one hand, on the Haldeman level, I think it works perfectly as this idea that like the military uh, industrial complex ends up absorbing, co-opting reproduction itself. You yeah. know, like it, it, that makes sense within his his seeming worldview of 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 the military engine. Uh, but, yeah, it also uh, harkens to a time when when uh, there were a lot of headlines and certain a uh, certain amount of fear mongering and yeah. even moral panic about the idea of test tube babies. Yeah. Um, so perhaps some of our listeners remember that hysteria because I feel like we see less of it now specifically. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I think it's the. This movie is weirdly projecting into the future a kind of temporary irrational stigma that arose from culture at a particular time, like in the late 80s or early 90s. Yeah, because was, again, what test tube babies refers to is in vitro fertilization, and in vitro means within the glass. But the process doesn't actually take place in a test tube, but rather in a Petri dish. The egg is fertilized in a, in, in a Petri dish, um, and when it is three to five days old, it's transferred to a uterus. And today, this is mainstream, uh, granted expensive, but it's a mainstream reproductive choice. The term itself, however, this is interesting, test tube babies, was coined in the 1930s to refer to artificial insemination. Huh. So in, in both cases, we can you know, just taste the moral panic yeah. um, regarding some sort of new reproduction trend. And in both cases, these are things that, um, you know, for the most part, quickly, it quickly became normalized. Um, it is also interesting that there's like a, a a brief gag in the film about just the idea of um, of sperm donation as well, as oh, if yeah. that in and of itself is this ridiculous like uh, uh, yuck it up kind of uh, scenario. Yeah, uh, Tex goes like, "You ain't using my DNA to make no tubies." How how how? 
<laughs> yeah, it, 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 that's exactly how it went. <laughs> so, yeah, anyway, another case of science fiction doing what science fiction often does, but it certainly seems a bit silly now given the mainstream acceptance of IVF. Yeah. But the but the two bees remain a major theme in the film, and and as I said, mm-hmm. uh, Laplace uh, announces to everybody that there is basically a two bee race between the uh, between the superpowers, and each one is creating their own robot jock super soldiers, and so there's like a constant escalation back and forth. Mm-hmm. Let's see. So we so we meet some of the two bees, and man, if you watch this movie, the, they will say the word two bees until it loses all meaning. There is just so <laughs> much talk about two bees in this movie. Uh, but we we meet some of the young young soldiers, and and of course Athena, the, the one we were talking about earlier, who's who's a major character in the film. And then we see uh, Alexander doing a threat video for Achilles. That's kind of like those uh, wrestling promos where yep. the wrestler would come out and say like, "Next week I'm gonna destroy you in the cage." <laughs> Uh, but then after that, we we get a view of the the populace at large, just people hanging out in the street, watching on big public TV screens the ongoing uh, saga of the of the robot jocks conflict. And this, so this is where we see the dudes in the house fray hats. But also, most people we see in this movie who are outside at any point are wearing masks, which was kind of strange to watch this year. I don't think they're wearing masks for any disease control reason. My best guess is that. So it's part of the setting that the world they live in is is after a nuclear war has taken place. So my guess is it's supposed to be that there are radionuclides everywhere and that the masks are to help prevent people from inhaling radioactive particles. I don't know if that would be effective in reality, but I think that's at least the reason that they're shown wearing them. Yeah, it, it is interesting to watch that this year because so many th- films and TV shows I've watched this year, I'm just constantly thinking to myself, why are they standing so close to each other? Why is no one wearing a mask? Uh-huh. Uh, you know, as, as illogical as it is to expect that in a film from 10, 20 years ago. Right. Uh, as opposed to out in the normal world where it, it, is, it is perfectly reasonable to expect that. Uh, so it's coming down to the big fight, right? It's going to be Achilles versus Alexander. So we see Achilles get into his robot and it's like getting ready for a rocket launch. There's like a launch mm-hmm. platform and there's all this staff getting everything ready. He's wearing his jumpsuit and his helmet and everybody, instead of break a leg, they say crash and burn. That's the, the yeah. good luck saying. And in fact, they specify in the movie that it is bad luck to say good luck, just like in a theater. Mm-hmm. While we were watching it, Rachel made some good joke. She said something like, a, we call it the confed play. <laughs> Might have gotten that wrong on the delivery. But uh, anyway, Achilles gets into a giant Optimus Prime. And, uh, and of course, the, there are a bunch of kids who call Achilles on a video phone before he goes into battle. I think they're his, his brother's many children. Um, mm-hmm. And or his brother-in-law, maybe uh, his, his sister's husband's. Anyways, so a bunch of people call him on a video phone and they wish him good luck. And then so he goes into battle and then we get one of the first uh, big like full stop motion animation fight scenes. Uh, We get to see what the robots do when they fight. And I I love the effects in this scene. Uh, You get these these they sort of like go down the list of trying out each of their weapons on each other. Like they're like, try that new green laser pair. And uh, this scene, I thought, is just great. Like it's not like it looks realistic, but that's not the point. It looks excellent. And I have to say, the, the the animation style that they use, the stop motion animation and, and the suits as well, they create a very clunky um, 
sort of movement, mm-hmm. which I think really works well in the film because we're, we're used to seeing some giant robot battles in more recent things like the Pacific Rim movies and so forth. Um, and there's a lot of like fluid modern action in those films. But I feel like the clunky action in this works works really well because it, it it does feel like colossal machines doing very specific things and the stakes are really high like like there's no wasted movement uh, and and we'll get into some of the, the the physical challenges of of the idea of giant machines battling each other in a bit but mm-hmm. but I ultimately really like the kind of clunky and deliberate mo- motions that happen in these battles yes and so the battle ends with a horrific tragedy so they sort of fight each other to a draw but then uh, then Alexander tries to do something dirty and fire a fire a projectile weapon at a part in the match when he's not supposed to do that. And it looks like it's going to hit the stands of spectators. I don't know why there were stands of live spectators. By oh, yeah, the way. This is, it's a power claw. It's like a power punch. Yeah, exactly. Uh, like he launches the, the, the fist of the robot. And Achilles is like, no, the people, uh, to, to reference uh, Superman 4. He, he goes, no, the people. And he dives in front of it before it can hit the stands. But... I don't know. I guess he should have anticipated this. The power claw hits him and knocks him back and he falls on the stands, crushing tons of people and and killing them. And there is I'm not sure I was trying to put my finger on what exactly is so funny about this, but the staging of the horrific mayhem that we see in the aftermath of him falling on the stands is hilarious. There are all these like bloody bodies all over the place, but for some reason it looks so funny. And I think maybe it's because the bodies are all kind of like perfectly evenly spaced apart from each other. It just looks staged in a really funny way. I didn't get that as much, but I I was thinking, well, like, well, I'm, I don't think the boy needed to see this. So it's best that we didn't watch it. Uh, uh, One kind of neat bit of trivia about that scene though, is apparently audio from it is used in the creation, was used in the creation of the nine inch nails track, the becoming off of the downward spiral. Huh? Um, Okay. Which I, I never picked up on, on that before. But it, as it turns out, like that album, as much as we might think of the downward spiral as just, you know, being this this industrial, you know, deep gothic phallic oriented, uh, you know, plunge into the psyche. It's ultimately a celebration of of uh, science fiction films from the, the day because you've got samples from uh, robot jocks, but also from THX 1138, from Leviathan, Angel Heart, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Alien, The Elephant Man and Sorcerer. The truck movie? Yeah, the, the truck movie, the remake okay. of... Uh, uh, Wages of Fear uh-huh. that had the awesome, I mean, just amazing Tangerine Dream soundtrack. You had me at Leviathan. <laughs> uh, so next thing in the movie, we get to see what their international criminal court or whatever it is looks like. And it's just dudes in referee outfits, which <laughs> like, so these these referees are now settling international disputes. Who appoints them? Where do they come from? I don't know. I, I assume it's supposed to be some sort of United Nations type thing. Uh, but, yeah, they have this cool floating um, vehicle, this like hover, uh, hovering um, referee uh, vehicle that they use, which is pretty cool. Mm-hmm. But they're wearing literally the black and white stripe referee outfits. And they're, they're yeah. but they're like justices. They're like judges presiding over a trial in which both sides are presenting arguments about why they technically won this match in which – a bunch of people got crushed and it turns out the, the referees decided is inconclusive and there will have to be a rematch in one week. 
And of course, Alexander loves this. He he cries out in the trial. He says, yes, one week I kill you dead. And Achilles is very sad because he does not want to fight anymore. He says, I did my contract. Ten fights. That's it. So he he's like, I won't do anymore. I retire. And Alexander calls him out. He says, coward, you lost your nerve. Well, he's also really torn up about all the people that died when he, he his robot fell into the stands. Right. So, yes. That- so I think it's understandable. Like he's like, I'm done. I don't want any more of this. Let the tubies handle it. And the tubies, of course, are like, yes, yeah. let us in there. This is all we've been raised to do. Oh, they're so excited. The, the tubies are, are loving it. One of them's going to get to fight. So one of the Tubi boys says Achilles is a coward for retiring, but uh, Pathina is not having it. She stands up for, for Achilles, and Athena is like, he's not a coward. Uh, and then we get an argument with the the market commissioner, I guess. He's like Achilles' boss. I, I'm not mm-hmm. sure exactly what he's supposed to be, but uh, he, he's in charge of the robot jocks for the market side, I guess. And he tries to argue – we get like squabbling over what the contract means. He's like, you haven't actually finished your contract because you didn't finish 10 fights. The last one was inconclusive and it isn't over until someone wins. And then Achilles responds, I don't know what this line means. He responds by saying, you sound like one of your damn tubies. <laughs> <laughs> what, what, what is the meaning of that? I, I, don't, I don't know. I guess it's just that the tubies – are utterly indoctrinated into this this idea of um, of warfare. Okay, and, and, you know, like the, the the new generation has raised for it and knows nothing else, and has and just in a way, it's kind of like they represent like youthful vigor for uh, in in almost innocence before the battle. Mm-hmm. And of course, he is the veteran. He's been through it. He's come out the other end, uh, and and knows that warfare is horrible. Right. Uh, so I guess the next thing that we get to is this really amazing scene. It's it's like there's a dance party in a bar that includes Tex dancing with a woman, and it, mm-hmm. it's hard to describe. You just need to see this scene. It's like the scene in Message from Space where they have their cantina equivalent. The it 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 is a party that must be witnessed. Yeah, it's a fun cantina scene. And so while this dance party is going on in the background, Achilles, now depressed, is in the bar getting blackout drunk. He's doing this thing where he's drinking the alphabet. So he's going down the alphabet, drinking a drink for every letter. Uh, and I think oh, he's, he's made his way to J, and the, the bartender suggests a julep. Wow, wow. This is, this is an interesting concept that I kind of glossed over watching the film. Um, Certainly not advisable for a single evening. No. But I wonder what would be the proper way to drink the alphabet. It would be kind of interesting to make that list and to pick out a particular cocktail uh-huh. uh, for each one. Huh. Oh, what starts with A? Uh, give me one alcohol, please. <laughs> uh, but so then he's sitting there and then all the tubies come in and they're young and full of excitement and vigor. And they try to cheer Achilles up talking about how the uh, – they. Uh, this was great. <laughs> the way they try to cheer him up is they talk about, hey, the audience members in the stands signed releases. You know, They agreed to mm-hmm. be there. They knew what the risks were. You shouldn't feel bad. Yeah, they the tubies have just bought every line that the market has. Has told them. Yes. They just believe it all absolutely. They, they like they actually read the fine print and they love it. They're all on yeah. board with with every bit of the contract. And then Alexander shows up, and this is one of multiple scenes in the movie where the characters are drinking in this bar that they share with the opposing side. And I don't know how to so so the premise that's going on is that 
the Confederation is constantly winning these fights because of info security leaks on the market side. Like there are spies and everybody's concerned about how people are finding out about the new weapon systems on the market robots. But then at night, the two different sides just go get drunk together in the same bar. That's mm-hmm. <laughs> that seems not secure. Yeah, absolutely. It seems like a terrible idea, but it works really well to move the plot along uh, because it's one of those things. Anytime you have giant robot battles or giant monster suit battles or whatever, you got to have a lot of human interaction to pad out the movie. And and this works well for the most part. Right. So one of the kids, uh, so Alexander shows up at the bar and he's just being a bully. He's just swinging his weight around, just being mean to everybody. And one of the kids challenges him and he and he he scoffs he's like i do not fight two bees <laughs> so apparently uh, alexander is also prejudiced against the the two bees and alexander starts twisting this kid's fingers and then achilles still drunk intervenes and that they start to fight but then alexander says he will not fight him now he says i do not fight for fun what do you fight for? Which is a strange moment where the movie suddenly like asks you to be thoughtful in a way that it hasn't uh, maybe so far, or certainly not for a while, because it appears that Achilles does not actually know. He He's maybe like, huh, I've spent my life becoming a soldier, but I really don't know if there's a good reason for, for any of the fighting that I'm doing. It, it feels like an artifact of, of, of an earlier version of the script, um, but, but it's also an energy that we come back to later. Right. Uh, so uh, Athena carries the drunk Achilles home. He, uh, she apparently she takes his clothes off, and then the next morning they have this long, like naked hangover conversation where he's like drank, dragging his sheets around and, and arguing with her about uh, arguing about what they're fighting for and who should be fighting. And uh, Athena Athena gets mad at him. She I guess because he's retiring and she is like, I was bred not to have fear. I was bred for a purpose. You you just happened. And so it's clear actually that the 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 prejudice kind of goes both ways. Like the the Tubies apparently disdain non-Tubies because they exist for no particular reason. Yeah, just random existence. Uh, yeah. So I mean it's it's interesting. There's a fair amount of of cool world building going on in this film. Yeah. Uh, and and so she's like one of the things in the scene I think is she's trying to figure out like what are the secrets of how he always won his battles and he was and he's like I don't know a lot of it's just luck and she doesn't like this answer so she gets really mad at him and she says I wanted to learn the secret of the great Achilles but you just talk about luck and fear there's nothing you can teach me except how to lose. <laughs> Uh, so th- there's another scene where we see like the 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 youngsters training. They're they're doing their 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 two B exercises, and Tex reiterates to Achilles. He says for the second time, you know, a woman can never be a robot jock. Yeah, yeah. He's uh, again the old the old fashioned attitudes of uh, of Tex here. Yeah. So uh, te- Tex is quite the sexist, and he and he makes it clear over and over. But this does not uh, this does not discourage Achilles from retiring. I think maybe he's trying to talk Achilles into staying on. He's like, look, you know, you're the only one who can do it. But Achilles retires anyway, and he becomes a civvy. Uh, so you see him just suddenly going around the city. He's not at mission control anymore. He sees a mural on a wall somewhere i think that has his picture on it and someone has written the word coward but misspelled it's coward now how do you know that's not just how they spell it in the future joe that's true spelling changes over time that's a very good point it's just like how in the future the word jocks plural is spelled with an x instead of cks yeah 
But so so now the market's got a problem. Achilles, their their greatest warrior, has retired, so they've got to put one of these tubies in the robot to fight Alexander. So they go through some rapid tubie training, and the way the way this <laughs> uh, shakes out is that Athena and the other tubies have to climb the aggro crag. There's this big rattling jungle gym of death and they're all fighting each other to get to the top first and climb through this hole in the ceiling and athena is victorious she is the greatest of the tubies so she's going to become the new jocks and as a newscaster declares she is the first female robo jock but achilles now at home sees this on tv and he's like no i can't let her go into battle so he he goes back he goes back to jock's control and he's like i will be the jock and he trains with Tex, uh, and then uh, and then there's a scene where Doctor Matsumoto and Tex begin to argue about how to to best keep the new robot system a secret from spies. Uh, Doctor Matsumoto has taken measures to keep it secret in a way that Tex does not approve of. Uh, and so there's more drinking at the bar, of course. I mentioned that would come back. Alexander sits down next to Achilles, and he declares that you make my drink taste like blood. <laughs> I was thinking, is that an expression? What does that mean? Do you know what he's yeah, getting can, at there? I, I can think of no way that that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Unless, because I mean, he, is he saying? I can't tell if he's saying it in a way where he's like, "My drink is better because it tastes like blood," or is it worse because it tastes like blood? It's really hard to get a read on what exactly floats Alexander's boat here. Yeah. So we're ramping up to the final confrontation between Achilles and and Alexander. Uh, but then before that, there is a great scene where I think maybe we shouldn't reveal what happens. But there is a, a confrontation about who is actually the spy on the market side who's been leaking the new technology secrets to the enemy. Uh, there's a there's a great showdown there that has some some good dialogue in it actually well some like good dialogue that changes almost mid sentence to become hilariously cliched yeah it's punctuated by uh, hilarious cliches but has some some nice lines in there yeah uh, so it's it's a very interesting scene and of course the spy is revealed but we won't spoil it for you we're not going to tell you nope. who the spy is uh, but then anyway uh, so Athena comes to Achilles room the night before the big battle and you think maybe this is going to pan out to be like a love scene but instead she tricks him and shoots him with a sedative and locks him in his apartment because her angle is no I will be the robot jock I will fight Alexander. I don't mean to harp on the film because the film looks great and I love I love the way the sets look. I love I love the props. I love I love everything. Uh, but uh in this scene when she uses an injector gun on him, mm -hmm. it's it's fairly obvious that in the wide shots she's using a, a, a hot glue gun, yes. like a hot glue gun that's been painted silver. Yes. And then on close-ups, it's like an actual injection gun or something that looks more, far more believably like an injection gun. Uh, so it's just something interesting I noticed. It didn't really yeah. take me out of the film. And again, I don't want to harp on it like this is like... Yeah, you know the cheapness of the movie because for the most part it looks wonderful. I th the effects budget went mainly into the robot battles, I think, uh, and jumpsuits too. Yes. Jumpsuits and robot battles. Yes, uh, but but I think you're right. In in the close-ups, it's it's a regular prop gun, so it makes me wonder why they couldn't use a regular prop gun in the wide shots too. But in the wide shots, it's a thousand percent a hot glue gun. Yeah, maybe something that changed pretty late in production. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, the next morning, uh, Athena goes in to to take Achilles 
Ellie's place inside the robot. She's got her visor down so nobody can see who she is. She's pretending to be him, and she's going to go do the fight herself. Meanwhile, uh, meanwhile, Achilles escapes his apartment, and he, he runs to the battlefield, and we get this final showdown. And I don't know how much we should say about the final showdown or how exactly to talk about it, but it's a pretty great robot battle that involves flying into space and, uh, and different interesting weapons get deployed. Uh, uh, I, I don't know. It, it's a lot of fun. Yeah, I mean, there's one. I will spoil one weapon that they use. That is the uh, the bolo saw, which I remember f- from watching part of this. I think probably on Sci Fi Channel back in the day. Uh, but but even in the rewatch, it was just a wonderful moment because I've never seen a sci fi weapon quite like it. Mm-hmm. It's this device that like shoots a chain around the limb of another robot, and then that that boloed chain like locks into place, allowing rotary uh, motion of the chain. So it works kind of like an inverted chainsaw then to saw off the limb of an enemy robot, and it's wonderful. It's 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 great. I'm, I'm surprised it's not. I, I don't know that I've seen it ripped off in any subsequent giant robot movie or anything, but they should because it's a it's a fabulous weapon. Yeah, totally. Um, well, maybe we should just focus on the big robots for a minute before we get to the the glory of the ending. Yeah. So again, the robots look pretty awesome in this. A, com- a combo of awesome old school stop motion, and I think some old school man in suit effects. And the battles may not feel as dynamic as something you get nowadays, or even in mech fiction of decades past. But it all has a feeling of authenticity to it. And I think one of the main reasons. And this is something that I think ties in well with uh, you know some elements you see in the Forever War. These are big weapons, and mass and gravity. These are perpetually your greatest threat and your enemy's greatest weakness. As such, one of the worst things that could possibly happen to you in one of these uh, robot jocks uh, uh, mechs is that you might fall over or be pushed over. Yeah, and this is actually I think really smart. Like if you're going to take the premise seriously. It's good to think about physics in this way, and I guess Haldeman did, did you know, he knew a lot about physics, and so he, he did actually have this in mind, and I think this is a great monster science connection because it's worth keeping this in mind about biology. Evolutionary design problems are not symmetrical across great differences in scale. One of the examples of this often cited is – you know, those like articles, we've probably said things like this in the past, uh, being, you know, being kind of loose when we talked about it, where you say, like, if a flea were the size of a car, it could jump the height of the Empire State Building or something like that. Except the problem is, in a way that could be true, just as a matter of, you know, scaling up the distance of a flea's jump. But it's also not literally true because if a flea were the size of a car, it wouldn't be able to do that anymore. It's like athleticism would not scale up proportionately. It's because it's the size it is that it can make that jump proportional to its body length. Uh, so, so depending on the size of your body, you actually face vastly different threats and different constraints from the physical world. And one of my favorite examples, which I think people rarely think about – is the amazing difference that body size makes when you're thinking about the dangers posed to you by water. Uh, so there's a classic article by uh, the, the great scientist J.B.S. Haldane, who you know was behind a number of extremely important biological concepts in the 20th century. Uh, he wrote this article uh, called On Being the Right Size. And th- this is a paragraph that I remember when I first read this. This really did blow my mind. Um, 
so so think about this. Haldane writes, a man coming out of the bath carries with him a film of water about one fiftieth of an inch in thickness. This weighs roughly a pound. A wet mouse has to carry about its own weight of water. A wet fly has to lift many times its own weight, and, as everyone knows, a fly once wetted by water in any other liquid is in a very serious position indeed. An insect going for a drink is in as great danger as a man leaning out over a precipice in search of food. If it once falls into the grip of the surface tension of the water, that is to say, it gets wet, it is likely to remain so until it drowns. A few insects, such as water beetles, contrive to be unwettable. The majority keep well away from their drink by means of a long proboscis. So it's amazing to think about how like getting wet doesn't bother us at all, but for much smaller animals, because of the difference in like the mass of your body and the strength of your muscles compared to the surface area of your body and the properties of water at that scale, water could be like this horrifying slime that takes a grip on you and like you, you can't get away from. Mm-hmm. But a lot of these asymmetries, uh, not all of them, but a lot of them are based on the force of gravity and the ratio of surface area to mass as an object gets bigger. And this brings us back to the robot jocks. So to read a section from that same JBS Haldane article, he, he's talking about the dangers of falling, what, what falling is as a threat to animals of different size. Quote, to the mouse and any smaller animal, it presents practically no dangers. You can drop a mouse down a thousand-yard mine shaft, and on arriving at the bottom, it gets a slight shock and walks away, provided that the ground is fairly soft. A rat is killed. A man is broken. A horse splashes. For the resistance presented to movement by the air is proportional to the surface of the moving object. Divide an animal's length, breadth, and height each by ten. Its weight is reduced to a thousandth, but its surface only to a hundredth. So the resistance to falling in the case of a small animal is relatively ten times greater than the driving force. And I think this would absolutely be the same kind of concern if you were considering mech battles. So if you were to have something like the auto loader and aliens, you know, like the, mm-hmm. these roughly slightly bigger than human sized mechs fighting in those things would be entirely different a proposition than fighting in these hundred foot tall or 200 foot tall giant robots, where in the case of the larger robots, gravity itself is an immense threat to you. Like just falling over will, will very likely destroy you. So yeah, in this film, you get, you do get the impression that most of these robot jocks battles end when the first combatant is, uh, is, is, is knocked over or made prone. Like it seems like most of the time there's no getting up from that. Right. And it's interesting to think about like, like how did they get here? How did they get to the point where they're basically each battling in a skyscraper on legs? Yes. <laughs> and, I, and I'm guessing there's, there would have been an arms race over time. So maybe they started smaller, like just kind of like power armor sort of a situation, mm-hmm. maximize the individual for one-on-one battle. But then over time... Like, what, what do you do? Do you start getting bigger suits? Like, my suit's bigger than yours and has bigger weapons, so now you've got to get bigger, too. And so now we see, like, the end results of that, where the combatants are absolutely as large as they could possibly get. And, are, you know, and they have all of these weaknesses based on that size, mm-hmm. but there's just no scaling back at this point. Yeah, that's interesting. It's almost one of those, like, pris- prisoner's dilemma type problems where, like, 
the the incentives for the individual are different than the incentives for like both parties when they look at things together. And if you could just get them mm-hmm. agree to both agree to scale back down, that would be better for both. But they but you can't get them to agree to that, so they just keep getting bigger. Uh, and mm-hmm. th- that also brings me to another interesting question: this movie raises some some things about it that you wonder if they would make sense in reality, and that is the very concept of symbolic warfare through single combat or champion combat. So the premise of the film is that you've got these superpowers. They are in violent conflict with one another, but they can't go to war. They don't go to war on, on the whole. Instead, they, they pick one person from each side to get in a robot, fight it out. And then the winner gets whatever it is they wanted. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it works in the, in the, in this film. And of course you also see this in mythology where, when mythological characters are used to embody whole nations or peoples, et cetera. Um, it it does remind me a bit of something that we discussed in our stuff to blow your mind episodes on the ant wars earlier in the year, Mm -hmm. where we, we talked about the various tournament, tournament battles that you see in ants, but also in certain small armed groups, uh, historically, uh, in, in human civilization, and the idea here being like if if you're if you don't have large armies that are combating each other, sometimes it makes more sense for a select few individuals to engage in sort of uh, you know less high stakes combat to sort of feel each other out to see which way the battle would go and then uh, act accordingly. But in these cases, we're still not talking about. Uh, like uh, one soldier fighting one soldier, champion versus champion. Right. And this brings us back to something that we also talked about in the Ant Wars episode, which are these um, models. Again, these these are not perfect descriptions of what actually happens in battle, but they are somewhat accurate descriptions for modeling uh, casualties in conflict. And they're known as Lanchester uh, Square Laws and Lanchester's Linear mm-hmm. Laws. And so the main idea there, it's more complicated than this, but the main idea is that as you approach a situation that is a war of all against all, so the more your your battle resembles something where any soldier can engage any other at any time, so maybe like a shooting war, as it approaches mm-hmm. that instead of the type of battle where one soldier can only fight one other soldier at a time, so a, a mm-hmm. big series of duels, as it becomes more of a war of all against all, um, then the then the advantages provided by having superior numbers go up, not just in a linear way, but in a squared way. So that uh, having superior numbers is much more important than having better individual fighters in a war of all against all. And so, and that's because like the, the force with superior numbers can quite quickly reduce the numbers of the other forces so that they can't really put up a fight of any kind. And so anyway, in a world with technology that enables, you know, a war of all against all, like a, a basic shooting war scenario, uh, the the side with superior numbers is almost always at an extreme advantage. And that makes me think about how it's hard to imagine in a modern context with modern technology that champion warfare would ever really emerge unless it were like imposed by an outside force, like for champion warfare to be the way that you would settle geopolitical conflict, it would require the side with more with numerical superiority to agree to the champion warfare and, and to say, yes, we will honor the outcome of this duel. But champion warfare necessarily improves the odds for the weaker force and hurts the odds for the stronger force. So why would the stronger force agree to it? 
Yeah. If now, if if in this film, if the judges, if the referees were aliens representing, say, a, a technologically advanced species that could just simply wipe out either side without thinking about it, like that would potentially make more sense. Yeah, but but it, but it, it does. Well, but I was gonna in that case though. Why not just have a trial where like you argue about who actually has the correct claim to the land rather than people just both say they want the land and you settle it with a fight. <laughs> it. I, I wish I could have. You know, seeing more what uh, Haldeman had in mind for this, like what his read on it would would have been, you know, because uh-huh. I mean, certainly it works. There, there's the symbolic level at which it works. But I wonder what the the world building uh, arguments would have been. Yeah, I mean, I think obviously it would be better for the soldiers and better for the people on both sides of a conflict if it could be settled without massive bloodshed, whatever whatever that method is. I mean, even if it's single combat between robot jocks, that's better than just having an all-out total war where you send all people into the meat grinder. But the the you know you hit the war pigs problem like leaders setting military policy are going to want to win they're not usually the people who themselves have to die in battle so while the mm-hmm. weaker force may very much want to settle things with robot jocks it just seems like the side with the numerical and weapon superiority would tend to just say no nah, no nah, we'll have a war yeah but you know ultimately this is this is not a, a picture that celebrates warfare it's it has it has a message uh you know an anti-war message uh, which I, which I ultimately like. Well, let's talk about the ending, the very ending, which is both actually sort of transcendently excellent and hilarious. Yeah. So basically, they just battle the hell out of each other. So this is this ends up being like the main event in which uh, robots do get up after being uh, knocked prone uh, through. The use of superior tactics, but also lots of tricky weaponry, uh, because, again, it all comes down to what secret weapons do you have that your enemy doesn't know about? Uh, so they engage in a lot of this and they, they end up going up into the stratosphere. They end up coming back down again. They end up destroying each other's suits. Uh, and, uh, and and there's some clever twists and turns in that battle, but it ends up with them both unsuited, both of them just uh, on uh, amid the the, the, the rubble, uh, trying to bash each other with like pipes and pieces of metal, like reduced to, um, uh, you know, to almost like paleolithic battle. Yeah. Yeah. Literally trying to bash each other with sticks and rocks. And and they reach a point where, uh, OK, it looks like um, Achilles is going to be victorious. You know, it's one of those those moments where is, is he going to uh, finish off his adversary? Mm-hmm. But no, Achilles has another option that he presents. And they have this wonderful little back and forth, which I, I quite like the dialogue, uh, you know, in the, the way that they ended this, because uh, Achilles says to him, you can live. And Alexander says, yes, if I kill you with this. And it's the pipey thing that he's holding. Or was it a rock? I thought it was a rock, but I could be wrong. Okay. And then Achilles says, we can both live. And then Alexander says, we are already dead. We are robot jocks. Uh, <laughs> which which I think is a line. It, I think it works here. But it, it, I also have to remind myself that Haldeman's original working title for this was The Mechanics. Yes. I, so yeah. so that would have been a more interesting line if he's like, no, we, like we're mere mechanics. You know, like we're not even really controlling these, thi- these things and this, this military engine. We're just caring for it and making it run. Right. I mean, in, in a weird way, it's an exchange that. It, with a little bit of like verbal tweaking could have been very powerful and is in some ways powerful, but because of the phrase robot jocks, it, it absolutely spills over into absurdity. Uh, you know, so like if he had said we can both live and, and Alexander said, no, we are already dead. We're soldiers. 
I, yeah. I think the idea would be driven home there that like their their fates are not up to them. You know, the, yeah. their their fates are decided for them by forces beyond their control, uh, and that does seem to be the theme. But instead, he says, "You know, we can live. No, we are robot jocks." <laughs> yeah, and then, but then ultimately, like this is the spoiler for the end of the film. But uh, but he wins. A- Achilles is able to convince Alexander that yes, we can live. We don't have to fight. We can stop fighting, and they stop fighting. And then they do that awesome fist bump at the end, and that closes the picture. And you end up with this message of hope that you know that we can resist, that we can move beyond uh, like senseless battle. And and, and I I love it. Yeah. I thought it it ended perfectly. It ends on a great note. It ends with the hero and the villain agreeing not to kill one another. Right. And they didn't do that thing that they often do in films where the hero appeals to the villain's humanity and the villain seems to say yes, but then goes for a double cross. Right, then has and a turn, a, yeah. Yeah, and then, you know, he shoots him dead and then it's like, oh, well, he he did kill the villain, but he tried, he gave him a chance. He gave him a chance to be good. No, instead they, they do something different and, and I think it works. That is, I mean, so many movies use that. It is a, a plot device that I have come to absolutely despise just because of how common and how, in a way, how cheap it is. Because mm-hmm. what it, it's trying to show you is that it's, it's trying to have it both ways. It's trying to have the hero show mercy and not be vindictive and cruel. Uh, so the hero gets the upper hand, gives the villain a chance to like walk away or to live or whatever. And then the villain tries to stab them in the back and then the hero kills them. Yeah. It's trying so to have it know. both ways. So you get to see the villain killed and punished, but you also get to see the hero have mercy. I think it's, it's better to just choose one or the other. Yeah. Yeah, I, I don't know what kind of arguments may have happened, or maybe there weren't arguments over this part, but I like the way it turned out. So I don't know if this was ultimately the way Haldeman wanted it, or if this was more of a Stuart Gordon direction, or maybe this is just, uh, you know, the, the way it feels is like this is where the two visions come together and they work. It is a weirdly transcendent way to conclude this utterly ridiculous film. <laughs> All right. And well, speaking of concluding, it's time for us to conclude. Uh, You may be wondering, though, where can I see robot jocks? Unfortunately, this is a tough one. You can buy some uh, at times crazy overpriced DVDs, VHS and Blu-rays of robot jocks. But the Shout Factory edition of this from 2015 is currently out of print. Print. I think it went out of print in October of 2019. So hopefully it'll become more widely available in the future. No one seems to be streaming it, uh, like not even for rent or or digital purchase right now, save for the odd unauthorized, like highly unauthorized version. Uh, Joe, didn't you find this one on Facebook of all places? Uh, well, I didn't watch it there. I ended up watching the, the version that you rented and lent me, but... Um... Dig around for it if you desire, but uh, yeah. you should also, I mean, I would say start a letter writing campaign to the Criterion Collection and get them to put out their own edition of Robot Jocks, which is what the world deserves. Yeah. Yeah. We we definitely rented it, uh, got it from Atlanta's own Videodrome. Uh, they're still renting films. They're Atlanta's last video rental place. Um, but if you're not in the Atlanta area, you can still get in on the fun with their merchandise. You can find them at videodrome.tv, and their main website is videodromeatl.com. 
As for us, Weird House Cinema will continue. Uh, we're going to do this every Friday. We're going to celebrate some sort of a, a weird film. We may talk a little bit about science and culture in it, but for the most part, it's the celebration of the film itself. Our core science and culture episodes will continue to air on Tuesdays and Thursdays. And then we have, of course, some other content sprinkled around throughout the week as well. You can find all of that in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind feed, and you can find that wherever you get your podcasts. We just ask that you rate, review, and subscribe to help us out. And of course, get in touch with us. Tell us what you thought about Robot Jocks. Do you have memories of seeing it back in the day? Have you rewatched it recently? Did you rewatch it for uh, this episode? We want to hear from you. And we also want to hear from you about the general direction that we've been taking the Stuff to Blow Your Mind feed. Do you like what we're doing? Do you not like what we're doing? Uh, do you have some critiques to share? Uh, let us know. We'd love to hear from you. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other to suggest a topic for the future or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 